Welcome to Honey from the Rock, a podcast devoted to Bible exposition. My father, Jack Christensen, preached expositionally for over 50 years, first as a missionary to Pakistan and later as a pastor in New England. His legacy lives on in me. He often began his sermons with a little expression, and now a little honey from the rock, taken from Psalm 81, verse 16. The psalmist wrote, I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Today, more than ever, we need to feed our souls on the words of God in the Bible. The crying need of the church is for God-centered, word-explaining messages. So now, my friends, a little honey from the rock. I'm sure that you have seen lists like these. But here are some real excuses about car accidents that people have written on insurance claims. The other car collided with mine without giving me warning of its intention. I was sure the old fellow wouldn't make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. Going to work at 7 this morning, I drove out of my driveway straight into a bus. The bus was five minutes early. My car was legally parked as it backed into another vehicle. I started to slow down, but the traffic was more stationary than I thought. I bumped into a lamppost, which was obscured by human beings. No one was to blame for the accident, but it would never have happened if the other driver had been alert. The blame game is alive and well. We become very good at shifting responsibility for what happens to someone else. We can rationalize almost anything, so it becomes someone else's fault. Pastor John Ortberg tells the story of a CEO who had taken on a new job, and the outgoing CEO says to him, Look, sometimes you'll make wrong choices. You will. You'll mess up. When that happens, I have prepared three envelopes for you. I left them in the top drawer of the desk. The first time it happens, open number one. The second time you mess up, open number two. The third time, open number three. For the first few months, everything goes well. Then the CEO makes his first mistake. So he goes to the drawer, opens up envelope number one, and the message reads, blame me. So he blames the old CEO, and everybody is fine with it. Things go fine for a while, and then he makes his second mistake. So he goes to the drawer and opens up envelope number two. This time he reads, blame the board. So he blames the board of directors. And everybody says, well, you know, that makes sense. Things go well for a while. 
And then he makes his third mistake. So he goes to the drawer and opens up envelope number three. The message reads, prepare three envelopes. Sooner or later, the blame game ends. We either take responsibility or we walk away from the mess. James tells us moral integrity demands personal responsibility. Moral integrity demands personal responsibility. Integrity means that we live consistent, whole, or complete lives. Our outer lives match our inner lives. What people see matches how we think. If we want to live complete or whole lives, we must begin by taking personal responsibility for our choices. It is the first step toward moral integrity. And oh, oh, how the world needs to see people today of moral integrity. They are few and far between. We constantly hear of people who portray an image in public that doesn't match who they are in private. James gives us then three principles of integrity in these verses. So the first principle of integrity. Moral integrity demands personal responsibility for happiness. Moral integrity demands personal responsibility for happiness. Verse 12 of James chapter 1. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The word for blessed is a familiar Old Testament term meaning happy or fortunate. James tells us how we can find happiness in life as Christians. Christian happiness comes from perseverance, James says. He's looking back to the opening verses of this letter, verses 2 through 4, where he talked about perseverance under fire, those who persevere under trial. He gives us, in verse 12, the positive conclusion to the testing of our faith. The same Greek words for trial and endure are used in both verses. The word for approved in verse 12 is the same word translated as testing your faith in verse 3. Our joy or happiness in life is all about passing the tests of our faith. My friends, Christian happiness comes when God places us in tough spots and we persevere through those hard times. In other words, we pass God's test. Remember that the word for perseverance or endurance doesn't mean to simply passively resign ourselves to the fate. Endurance is the spirit of victory the spirit of power and a blazing hope for the future, which helps us get through the hard times. Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham as our example of perseverance. You remember that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. 
And when Abraham was ready to do that, of course, God provided a ram to sacrifice instead. The author of Hebrews says that God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead, that is Isaac, because he was the child of promise. Abraham passed the test because he focused on God's promises. Christian happiness comes from persevering through the struggles to victory in the end. James then goes on to tell us in chapter 1 that Christian happiness focuses on heaven. So when we have passed the test of our character and successfully endured the trials of life, we will be approved by God. We will receive a crown of life as the Lord promised us. The crown is a figure of speech for reward. The Christian's reward is heaven. The crown of life could well be translated the crown which is life, eternal life. Our reward is heaven and eternal life with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, James is not saying that we earn this eternal life by doing good works. We cannot, we can never earn eternal life. It is a gift of God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus earned it, not us. But heaven is our reward at the end of the race. God gives us eternal life in the first place and rewards us with eternal life in the last place. We have it now and we get it then. The Christian's happiness is not focused on the affairs of this world, but on heaven and eternal life. So here is the integrity question. Do we make our choices based on what we get now or what we get in heaven? Do we make our choices in life based on what we get now or what we get in heaven? It is the test of short-term or long-term gain. What drives your choices in life? Tim Keller illustrates the ethical choices we make by telling the story of Howard, a 27-year-old employee. Howard was given an opportunity to move from one big corporation to another one with greater opportunities for career growth. When he got to the point in the interview where they discussed the salary for the new job, his prospective employer asked him what his current salary was. Howard pumped up his salary by 4%, just a few thousand dollars more than he was actually making. He was thinking that if they thought he had a higher salary now, then they would offer him more money to attract him to take the job. He applied the rule of Minimax. The maximum benefit of telling the lie outweighed the minimal risk of getting caught. And besides... They were offering him less vacation time, so that justified pumping up his numbers. 
Well, Tim Keller asks, what is Howard doing? He is selling his integrity for a few thousand dollars. That's what he's doing. He is trading happiness now, more money, for happiness in heaven. He didn't have to do it, of course. He could have told the truth about what he earned now, and then honestly simply asked for a bigger salary. Instead, Howard lied, because what he wanted now was more important than the crown of life in heaven. Happiness, you see, is an integrity choice. Second principle, moral integrity demands personal responsibility for sin. Personal responsibility for sin in verses 13 through 15. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The blame game can keep us busy. We expend energy trying to blame others for our choices. In 2021, a woman sued McDonald's over an advertisement featuring cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets. She said they caused her to break her fast during Lent. The woman, an Orthodox Christian, said she was trying to stay away from meat and other animal products during the six-week period leading up to Easter. And she said, When I saw an advertising banner, I could not help myself. I visited McDonald's and bought a cheeseburger. In her official complaint, she explains, In the actions of McDonald's, I see a violation of the consumer protection law. I asked the court to investigate, and if a violation has taken place, to oblige McDonald's to compensate me for moral damage. Why? Because the advertisement enticed her to break Lent. The blame game. The Christians that James was writing to were more than ready to blame someone else, or in this case, James says, even to blame God for their choices. James says, look, we cannot blame God for our sins. He's not at fault. We must take personal responsibility for our sinful choices. The recipient of temptation is not God. We cannot blame God for our temptation because God cannot be tempted by evil. Much debate among New Testament scholars focuses on this little expression here. The word that is used here is not used anywhere else in the Bible. Some suggest that James even invented the word. The gist of all the theological discussion is this. God is invincible to evil temptations because evil has no appeal to him. 
Evil has no hold on him. Sin cannot get any hooks into God to entice him in any way. Evil is abhorrent to God, so his character is invincible to temptation. He cannot be tempted. Well, you say, what about Jesus? When Jesus, the Son of God, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, they were real temptations because Jesus was both God and man in one person. As a man, Jesus could be tempted by evil. But as God, he was invincible to temptation. He could never have sinned. This is what theologians call the impeccability of Christ. Think of Jesus' humanity as a piece of straw that is easily bent or broken, very weak. Think of Jesus' deity as a rod of iron that cannot be bent. If you join a piece of straw to a rod of iron, the straw cannot be broken either. So too, if you join the humanity and the deity of Jesus into one person, he cannot sin. His humanity made him temptable. His deity made him impeccable. You say, well, Dave, why is this little excursion into theoretical theology important for me? It is important because it is the basis for our belief in a moral universe. God, who created the universe, cannot be enticed by evil, for he is pure and holy and just. There are moral absolutes because there is a morally absolute creator. So the recipient of temptation is never God. And the source of temptation is not God either. It's important to remember that the same Greek word translated as tempt can refer to external testing or internal enticement to sin. Back in verses 2 through 4, and again in verse 12, James uses the word to refer to external testing. But in verses 13 through 15, James is referring to an internal solicitation to do evil. Obviously, God does test us externally. He places us in situations of trial and temptation. His purpose is to test us in order to approve us as people tried by fire. But God never, ever tempts us internally so as to solicit us to sin. God places us in tempting circumstances, but the actual temptation to sin comes in from inside of us, not from God. We cannot blame God for our failures. Why? Because there is always a way out. There is a way not to sin, a choice we could make. According to 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, God always makes a way of escape in every tempting situation. So we can never blame God because there is always a way out. The nature of temptation, however, is personal, verses 14 and 15. If we want to find out why we sin, why we make those choices, 
we had better stop pointing the finger at others and begin pointing the finger at ourselves. Notice the progression of sin in these verses. We start with lust in verse 14. Lust is wanting something that is not ours to want. Lust begins inside of me. We are tempted when our desires entice us to do wrong. We can't blame it on the devil. We can't blame it on other people. James describes this process of lust with two words, carried away and enticed. Carried away and enticed. The first word refers to the fisherman who lures the fish into the net. The second word refers to someone who baits a trap. Our lusts lure us with bait into the waiting trap of sin. My friends, we we sin because we want to sin. Lust is the first step in the process. We want something that is not ours to have. And lust then leads us to sin in verse 15 in this progression. The end result is not life but death. The end product of this reproductive process is death. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. We earn what sin pays. Sin may look good, but sin always kills in the end. Sin kills relationships. Sin kills opportunities, and ultimately, sin leads to eternal death apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. There is something important to notice about this process. The verbs are all in the present tense, indicating that this is a constant, ongoing process. We have a tendency to think that victory over sin means that we will not have any more failures. We want it. But this, my friends, is a battle that never, ever ends until we are with Christ in heaven. How often do we talk about sin as if it is in the past? We're over that sin. We've won that battle. Not true. Author John Fisher writes, Sin is like alcoholism. Sinners are never cured. They simply decide to stop sinning. And it's a daily decision. In fact, I would say it's a moment-by-moment decision. We are always sinners living with the consciousness of our own sinfulness every single day of our lives. It is a day-by-day battle for every one of us. The third principle. Moral integrity demands personal responsibility for deception personal responsibility for deception, verses 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Verse 16 is a transitional verse. It's a negative command. 
which carries the force, stop being deceived. It can either refer to self-deception or being deceived by someone else, but either way, we are to stop being deceived. In this context, James seems to be talking about our tendency towards self-deception. We are experts at deceiving ourselves. Who explains the self-deceiving self to self? Well, God does. How do we deceive ourselves? We deceive ourselves by thinking that God cannot help us. There are two great lies of self-deception. First, we blame God. And second, we say that our problem is beyond God's ability to solve. God cannot help me is a lie. It is self-deception. God is the giver of good gifts. He is also the creator of the universe who sets the stars in their places. The words that are used here about God are astrological terms. The lights were the stars. The word for variation referred to the setting of stones in a pattern, much like the astrological charts that determine our fates, according to some. The word translated shifting shadow had to do with eclipses, which were feared in the ancient world as signs of fate. But God created all the stars, and God is not controlled by the astrological fates. He controls everything with his unchanging character. We deceive ourselves when we say that God cannot help us in our mess. God is the giver of good gifts. He has promised his resources to us. So we turn God into a liar if we say he can't help us. Telling others that God can't help you is calling God a liar, my friends. We also deceive ourselves if we think that God cannot overcome fate or the alignment of the stars. God's the creator of the universe. Neither fate nor failure is beyond his power to change if we will accept his help. We deceive ourselves by thinking that God cannot save us, verse 18. The greatest gift that God gives to us is the gift of eternal life. God brought us forth, gave birth to us by his sovereign will. This verse refers to regeneration by the power of God's word, the new birth. Spiritual birth is God's greatest gift to us. Those who are regenerated or given new life become the first fruits of the transformation yet to come for all creation. My friends, no one in this world is beyond the power of God to save. God's giving and saving nature cannot be blocked out, shifted, or eclipsed. He always remains ready to give and to save. James tells us to stop deceiving ourselves about sin and about God and about ourselves. All of the resources of heaven are at our disposal in our daily battle with sin. 
God never deviates from his willingness to help us in that battle. We must call on his resources to win, and he will gladly give us what we need. He will gladly enable us to win our battle over sin. Will you do that today? God is there for you. Christ is there for you. And he leaves his spirit to, ena- to enable us to win the, the victories we need to win in this life. Will you turn to him and accept his help right now? Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying, the person who is good for excuses is good for little else. Are you playing the blame game today? Am I? These are important questions to ask ourselves. We can talk all we want to about the moral crisis in our society, and it's there. We can place the blame on our politicians or on our educational system. We can blame social media or our cultural environment. We can blame genetics or we can blame our parents. But in the end, moral integrity is a deeply personal issue. Moral integrity demands personal responsibility. We need to take personal responsibility for our happiness, for our sin, and for our self-deception. My friends, the world desperately needs to see Christians living lives of moral integrity. Churches need to be beacons of integrity to a world in moral chaos. People need to see that we are authentic to the core. We are real. They need to see us as the real deal. Yes, we struggle, but we also walk lives lived by the power of God and focus on integrity being consistent. We need to live what we preach. In order to do that, we must take personal responsibility for the choices that we make in life. Everything else in the name of religion is a sham. 